Before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Medusa relied on readers inside Russia for 90% of the donations that sustained our work. Since the Kremlin expanded its war to all of Ukraine, however, Medusa's survival has depended on our international audience. The Russian authorities can try to stop the public from seeing our journalism, but they will fail. We have prepared for this. Medusa has a mobile app, we have an enormous audience on social media, and we distribute newsletters over email. Our readers will still be able to reach us using VPNs. Financial uncertainty in Russia means Medusa must now turn to our readers around the world. To continue our work, we turn to you. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Hello there, I'm Kevin Rothrock, the Managing Editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and welcome back to another episode of The Naked Pravda. One question I've heard often over the years, and especially frequently in the last couple of months, is about what kind of information still reaches ordinary Russians. The assumption here isn't just that the public doesn't know where to look for independent journalism or that the Kremlin blocks it all, but that nobody is even creating it. As a longtime editor at Medusa, I've obviously responded to these questions with a lot of self-promotion. Go look at Medusa, I tell people. It's a beacon of the free press, don't you know? But there have always been other media outlets also, or rather there were, until very recently. But even journalists from publications that have dissolved, like Znak.com or Echo of Moscow, or outlets that have suspended operations like TV Rain or Novaya Gazeta, many of these journalists have rebounded with their own projects, utilizing newsletters and social media, even without the infrastructure of the old newsrooms, the work continues. For a better understanding of this new guerrilla reporting, I spoke to two independent journalists now operating from outside Russia to find out how they're managing this job. I wouldn't say that independent media in Russia failed because they have been being destroyed for 20 years. That's Farida Rustamova, a journalist who's worked with BBC Russia, RBC, Medusa, TV Rain, and others. She now runs a Telegram channel and a Substack newsletter where she shares political analysis and her own exclusive reporting on decision-making in the Putin administration. I asked her if she feels like her colleagues lost the fight to the Kremlin's propaganda, given the public's at least passive support for the war against Ukraine. She insists that independent journalists did everything they could. It's not that independent media failed, it's the government who destroyed them. And the main independent media, they literally survived just because some enthusiasts decided that they will continue their work. So right. I wouldn't say that, but I get it. Obviously, we underestimated the power of how propaganda shapes people's minds mm -hmm. and, and how it affects their lives. But on the other hand, one thing that I want to say all the time is that all the Russian independent journalists 
all the human rights activists, all the, all the oppositioners, they have been telling that Russian government is, it's like it's a mafia state and that they are all criminals, basically. Well, maybe not all of them, each and everyone, but still, yeah, that this is a criminal state and mm-hmm. that's, that this is brutal mm-hmm. and that Putin's government, it's been in a state of war with its own society for 20 years, but nobody listened to us. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they kind of listen and they express their concerns. They are very deep concerns, but that, that was it. You cannot overthrow our military autocracy by simply going to a street rally mm-hmm. and simply publishing some independent journalism. I put the same question to Yekaterina Ketrakadze, the former head of the information service at the television network RTVI, and most recently an anchor at TV Rain. Yekaterina runs a Telegram channel now, where she tracks the news, and she co-hosts a YouTube channel that acts as a stand-in for TV Rain, which she and the station's senior managers are planning to resurrect in some new form very soon. Some independent journalists in Russia, I told her, have come to the conclusion that their industry failed in competition with state propaganda, making the invasion of Ukraine possible and acceptable to the majority of Russians. But she doesn't see it that way. Well, I categorically disagree with this approach. <laughs> Categoric. Okay. Because, well, the fact is that TV Rain, as an example, and for example, Radio Echo of Moscow or Nova Gazeta or other you know, smaller independent media outlets did have huge success in Russia in spite of the fact that there were repressions, there were decisions made by Russian government that were a, a huge problem for independent media in spite of the fact that they were trying to call us foreign agents, they were trying to build new and new and new restrictions for us. Still, we did have huge success. You know, Kevin, just imagine during the last days of uh, TV Rain's working on air after the mm. war has started. It was fi- f- 25 million views per day only on YouTube of TV Rain. Right. Right. And it means that there were people and there are, still are people in Russia who do not support the situation that they're facing right now. I can see and I can feel that there is a huge need uh, of the independent information. People are, people are asking and even begging us to start something new, to reunite TV Rain, to, to build a new television channel wherever we can do it. Mm-hmm. In the situation that Russia has seen itself during the past months, it's impossible to understand what's the level of support of the war. This is not common knowledge that Russians support Vladimir Putin massively. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's true, actually. I think that there are a lot of people, and definitely maybe more, even more than 50% of Russians who support Vladimir Putin. But there is another part of the society which is also huge, I would say maybe a half, even of Russian population. These people are scared to death. Can, can you imagine how, how can you live in the country where everything is banned, everything is prohibited, where people who take part in rallies 
people who try to protest in, in the streets, mm -hmm. they are arrested or they are prosecuted or they have some kind of problems with the law and the governmental organizations. It means that everyone in Russia understands that even if he or she wants to, wants to say no to this war, it would have terrible consequences for this person. So mm -hmm. uh, don't judge on Russian population and on Russian society by just seeing that there are no huge protests against the war. Mm -hmm. This is a dictatorship in the country. You cannot expect something big with massive rallies like we, like we see in the United States of America in this kind of situation. But you do, so you think that the independent media is successful in reaching roughly half the population? You're saying that you think half the population is, well, has the facts, so to speak? I, I think so. I mean, this is my, this is my personal attitude to the situation. Mm -hmm. Maybe <laughs> I'm too optimistic. Definitely, we are talking about millions of people, right? right? This is what I'm absolutely sure about. More than you see in the streets of any protest. Of course, of course. Yeah. And um, so, yes, we were successful, right? I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because TV Rain was banned in 2014 from cable networks in Russian Federation. Right. After, after the annexation of Crimea, after the uh, revolution in Ukraine, TV Rain was banned. But still, it survived, mm -hmm. and TV Rain has chosen the subscription model. And in spite of the whole, you know, propaganda machine, survive not surviving but but flourishing in Russia. Mm -hmm. In spite of this propaganda machine flourishing, in spite of the new laws and new tools that Russian politicians, Russian authorities were inventing against us, mm -hmm. we were still successful. We were even making money. Yeah. From this business. How can you say that? We, I mean, it means that until, until the situation became just threatening and dangerous for, for the journalists, right. it was a success for us and our colleagues from Echo Moscow. Echo Moscow was the main radio station. It was the most successful radio station in Russian Federation. Everyone in the government hated it, but still. So what about, so a lot of what I think, what it sounds like you're describing is is kind of how the independent media managed to really flourish even under the like the authoritarian conditions up until a few months ago but there's certainly been the crackdown has accelerated in a way that most if if not almost all truly independent journalists are now operating from outside the country yeah. has that impacted the quality of information available to russians and to the rest of the world like do you think that it's still the case that half of Russians are even you know, in an optimistic scenario that millions of Russians are still getting access to true information, accurate reporting, or has, has the crackdown, has that actually limited it now? And now propaganda is truly king. I mean, like, is there, has it changed? Well, yeah, of course, in spite of my optimistic approach. Uh, there, there is, I'm going to drag you down to pessimism. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Uh, there is... A huge problem right now. There is no one left there. Right. Definitely. Everything is destroyed. Yeah. Everything. All all the people who were trying to to cover the situation, the issues that Russia faces, not only the war, everything, right? Every single person as I understand. Almost everyone left has left Russian Federation. And of course the quality of the coverage of Russian issues, Russian everyday life is lower right now than it was. 
I wouldn't say that the quality of, of the coverage declined. I would say that I feel really, I really feel the lack of the coverage of current situation inside Russia. We lost, we're out of touch. I mean, from Russian society and we know there's only little that we know about them now. This is insane, but people are literally in some kind of cage. They're left with propaganda and that's the only thing that they consume now mm-hmm. because everything is blocked. Mm-hmm. I heard that the use of media right. increased uh, incredibly, but still, well, the main thing is, is, is now propaganda. It actually used to be, but I can say that at the beginning of the war, the first few days, we could see that people were really, they wanted to have some independent information and traffic, the traffic of TV Ray, the traffic of other independent, of Medusa and other independent outlets when they were not blocked. It was, it was insane. It increased incredibly. So what my sources actually told me, it's, you know, their estimation, but it's quite obvious that there was a, a split in the society in the beginning of the war when independent media still were operating and the government, they just, they, they really, they quickly, they got it and they just decided to quickly shut everything down. Yeah. That's, that's what they did. Almost all the outlets where I used to work are now blocked or shut down. Only one of them is, is just simply state controlled now. It's not owned by, by state, but it's state controlled. It's being censored. By the way, this particular outlet, it's Serbaka. It wasn't shut down, but it was like, it was a crackdown in 2016, right after our investigations about, it was, a, it, it happened because of our investigations about Putin's family and his assets, Panama Papers, etc. Right. That was the only reason. At the time, it was hugest independent media holding in Russia. And uh, it was too popular for Russian government to leave it, like, uncensored. I actually, I, I've been thinking about quitting, leaving journalism. Oh, really? Yeah. You're still thinking about that, or...? Um, no, <laughs> but it was by the end of the, of last year, I, I decided to quit TV Raid and take a break because I realized that everything will only get worse yeah. and they will shut all the Romanian media down. It's just a matter of time right? and very short time. Yeah. <laughs> and that, because they, as you know, they, they, they already designated everyone uh, as foreign agents, as undesirable IAEA organizations, yeah. and well... So what changed your mind? Because it, it obviously did get worse. I took a break and I didn't, I didn't work for 
three or four months, mm -hmm. about, about four months. When the war started, I felt so devastated, so anxious, so nervous and mm -hmm. literally frozen, frozen, I mean, from, from the shock and, yeah. but in a couple of days, I guess in three days, I, I just realized that I should, I should put myself together and do something because it's impossible to live in this, this terrible, terrible frozen, uh, yeah, frozen state. Well, I just, well, but what, what can I, what can I do? What, what, how can I help? I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. What else can I, can I do except writing articles mm -hmm. or yeah. calling, calling the things by their names. Right. Uh, yeah. And that's when I decided that to try to, to write something. And this right. is actually the great thing is that I'm just, I'm just, you know, realizing it now that this whole terrible thing uh, happening, it left me without my home, at least for now. Mm -hmm. I don't know when I'm, I will see all of my closest friends and when and where. I, I don't know what I'm going to do in the next month because it's, everything is so uncertain. And I have strange feelings about being Russian right now, mm -hmm. I don't want to generalize and to, you know, say that I'm, I'm refusing being Russian, but I have really, really mixed, mixed and, and complicated feelings about it. Right. Well, especially when you're abroad, navigating your own yeah. nationality is always complicated. I feel, I always feel that <laughs> way if I, whenever I go, even if I go to Canada or whatever, it's like, I still, f I feel more American than usual, <laughs> but also it's like, how, how do I, do I express that? Do I like apologize for that? It, especially during like the Iraq war era, if you went abroad as American, you had to be like, sorry, sorry, everyone. <laughs> sorry, I'm American. No, it's, it's, it's kind of same thing here. Farida Rustamova is no stranger to controversy. In December 2019, at Vladimir Putin's big end-of-the-year press conference, she asked the president directly about his two daughters. The same two women, incidentally, who were just targeted with U.S. sanctions, Ekaterina Tikhonova and Maria Varontseva. Farida ended her question like this. Tell me, please, when will you admit that they are your children? And when will they open themselves to society just like the children of other world leaders? Ever since... Farida hasn't been allowed to attend any events with Putin. The Secret Service banned her, she told me. More recently, in late February 2022, just after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Farida started a newsletter on Substack. She published her first article on March 1st, and five days later, she published an English translation of that article. The headline of that first article reads as follows. They're carefully enunciating the word clusterfuck. How Russian officials and members of parliament really feel about Putin's decision to send troops to Ukraine. I asked Farida what drove her to start a newsletter. It wasn't like this kind of, you know, outright decision that I'm starting my newsletter. You're sitting since... under a tree and like the Substack Apple hits you on the head and you said, Eureka. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. I just started writing an article about how the Russian elite feels about the beginning of the war 
I was just talking to them and asking how they, same as, as I did with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And I realized that there is quite a lot that can be told about this, about their perception and whether they expected it or, or not. Mm-hmm. And I just started writing and then it, it just it was, I was coming up with the, the ideas, the, you know, like step by step. I was thinking of, in the beginning, I, I, I thought that I can offer my article to some independent outlet, like, I don't know, the loser or, or maybe the bell or something else. But afterwards, I decided that I should probably try to start my own newsletter and try to make it on Substack because Substack is not blocked in Russian. This is a not popular platform and I can rely on my reputation or at least I can try to do that Mm -hmm. and see and see what happens. That was just a pure experiment. So I decided to, to do that. And actually that was shocking because it was this article it was incredibly popular and when you publish something for the first time you never expect that that it will gain such huge popularity within within days the most recent if i'm not mistaken the most recent article on your on your Substack is a story about how essentially how sanctions have not had the impact on elite and mass public support for Putin and the government that the West has probably intended, that it's actually led to a consolidation because a lot of the elites have now, that, that it's the, am I mischaracterizing it or is that, would you just- No, 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 I just, no, no, no. I, I just wanted to say that actually, do we know what all the sanctions were meant to do with the society? We actually don't know that. We, 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 we never heard that right. anyone say, I mean, as some senior official, that right. they're imposing the sanctions so that Russian society would overthrow the Putin's regime because they don't have McDonald's in, anymore. Right. Well, we don't know that. So mm-hmm. there, there is some people say, some experts say that, and I actually agree with them, that there wasn't such intention mm-hmm. that probably Western countries decided just to punish everyone and because this is war actually and the bomb it doesn't choose anyone who it's gonna kill or or injure Uh, so yeah this is this is literally war and they are not trying to make any split anymore in elites or in, in society because they are now thinking that this this is useless so we don't know that. But about my last article, I want to emphasize that I'm kind of a doctor who measures temperature, current temperature. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know how uh, even the same people are going to feel in uh, another month or two, or will feel all the, all the possible effects of massive sanctions we don't know that and of course i will try to learn that but if somebody if if somebody will still agree to talk to me because you know i think that the level of repressions inside russia is certainly going to rise Mm -hmm. okay 
Can you walk me through? I know that the sources that you you cite in that article, you know, they're unnamed for obvious reasons. But like, how do you go about generally putting together an article like that? Like, at what point do you decide? Okay, I've spoken to enough people that when I'm making these just kind of generalizations, it's it's enough. Like, how when does it feel like you have a good sense of things? Well, this is I actually never like this type of articles actually about. The spirit, the mood, the mood, yeah. And I used to think that there was enough information to make conclusions about the mood. And actually, it was true because we used to have some independent media, some media uh, about business and politics. And there were plenty of information that allowed you to make some conclusions. That's why I never like articles like that. We know that some Western media used to publish them a lot, but the situation will change enormously. So I decided that I should write a sequel of the first article, but it was really challenging because I wasn't sure that I can make all these generalizations mm. and, th- and that my sources, that they are not deceiving me, that they are not manipulating me. Yeah. Uh, even though with most of them, I have long-term relationships as a journalist and source relationships. So that's, that's why I try to speak to as many people as possible. And I hope based on my experience with, with the relationships with these people, I was able to distinguish whether they are manipulated or not. But in some cases, and I noted that in my article, I noted that I'm not sure if this person is defensive mm-hmm. or he's, he, he's really sincerely feeling this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, we have to bear in mind that this is not a, uh, this is just a journalistic article. I, I understand that it will be better if some other journalists or other media publish something on the same topic mm-hmm. and we will have some wider range of, of opinions of, of sources, of, yeah. but we don't have it. So mm-hmm. I understand that some people put responsibility on me about what the whole elite thinks, but it's just not really, not, not really fair. On March 1st, the same day that Farida's first Substack post went out, the Russian authorities blocked access to Daj Television, or TV Rain, for supposed violations of the Kremlin's strict ban on calling the invasion of Ukraine an invasion, or a war. Two days later, TV Rain's general director announced a temporary halt to all operations. The network, once known as the Optimistic Channel, closed down. But Yekaterina Kachukadze says a revival is coming. She and other executives are busy devising and strategizing that return right now. In the meantime, she and her husband, TV Rain editor-in-chief Tikhan Zetko, co-host a YouTube channel as a kind of stepping stone to the network's real comeback. We are thinking about looking for people when, when we reunite TV Rain, and we have this, we have this uh, big plan of reunion and, and 
building something new mm-hmm. out of Russia, unfortunately, so far. Um, right. Right. We still think that there would be people inside of the country who would be ready to cooperate with us to maybe just random citizens. Mm-hmm. And this is the only way, as I understand, this is the only way of working in the circumstances. Also, of course, we, we understand that there would be a huge risk for people who are still there and right. who, would, who would want to cooperate. And this is the challenge that we are facing. We are going to think about this. And I mean, we will figure something out. There is no... Ano- anonymous file uploads, like that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe we still need to be very careful with this because, I mean, it's really a huge danger for, for people. So right. it's going to be, it's a very tough decision. But we are still on the stage when this is not the main issue for us. We, we want to... We want to rebuild the channel. Yeah. After we understand what's the plan, yeah. finally, then we will try to find these people. We will try to arrange things and we will try to, to invent maybe some kind of form of cooperation when the people who would cooperate with us, who would work with us, yeah. uh, would not face the danger of being jailed or whatever. Right. What kind of journalism, before you're able to devise this like new... Because obviously like the conditions now they demand a lot of new thinking about how to do coverage in the first place. And until you're able to like create those new systems, what kind of reporting is possible now that you still see value in? Because I know, you, you know you're still doing, yeah. you're still covering Russia. Like what kind of things are still possible? Well, uh, there are still people, very brave people in Russia, political activists, volunteers, members of NGOs, you know, observers, people who are still ready to openly speak about what's going on in Russia. Mm-hmm. We interview them. Right. We also collect the videos with footage, you know, pictures, videos, audios, everything that is available online. Yeah. We have our reporters here. They mainly collect this pictures, this footage mm-hmm. on online and they record interviews with witnesses. The only thing that we can do is rely on people who are still in Moscow, in Russia. There's still a lot of people who are brave enough, uh, and I I respect them, and I adore these people who are still there and who want to speak, who are ready to speak. There's no many of them left in Russia, Mm -hmm. but still there are some opportunities. And also, you know, Facebook and and, uh, Twitter and Instagram still work. YouTube still works. I mean, Facebook and Instagram through VPN, people are using it. You know, yeah. people, are, people, are, people are much more sophisticated than Vladimir Putin if we talk about technologies. He doesn't, right. he doesn't use internet. He's not about internet and global mm-hmm. networks. He is about the files that he gets from his inner circle and they, they put on pages, on paper, everything they want him to see. So, yeah. I mean, I think he has some problems with the reality acknowledgement. The rest of Russia, particularly new generation, they use VPN, yeah. they put videos and texts and pictures online so we can gather it, mm-hmm. of course, verify everything like 10 times and then report to our viewers. This is not mm-hmm. the best thing to do, unfortunately. I understand that, but there's no other way. Yeah. So you're not particularly concerned with potentially YouTube being blocked because like right now, that's your your main channel, right? I mean, I know you have a Telegram channel as well, but the, the bulk of your new content is on YouTube. And I imagine 
any future iteration of TV Rain will also rely on YouTube heavily, maybe. Well, I'm thinking that, again, this is the question, uh, this is $1 million question. Uh, <laughs> what, what will be TV Rain doing with this signal, with the coverage, with the communication with the audience? We, we're not sure about that. Yeah. We are thinking, of, of course, we are concerned with YouTube. Yeah. We are ready. We understand that it will be blocked eventually uh, in Russia because it's pretty much impossible for Vladimir Putin to take this situation as it is. He has yeah. banned and blocked and destroyed everything. So right. YouTube is the only thing that is left and that is widely used by independent journalists, including myself, including Tichon Zitko. So, of course, we understand that VPN would be used by, by the audience, but we know that the amount of people who would join us on our live streams will inevitably uh, get lower. Yeah. Well, we need to, I mean, I don't know what to do with this, really. Right. So far, yeah. I don't have an answer. What, what should be, yeah. maybe there would be new technologies invented by people who are faster, who think faster, who are more flexible than Russia, Russian regime. And I have a huge hope for, for this new inventors. <laughs> Let's see. So far, YouTube is the, the only way to um, reach the people in Russia. Are there advantages? I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the disadvantages of reporting remotely, and the new media environment is obviously difficult to work in, more difficult. But, but you're also, in some sense, you know, you're finally free, right? You, I mean, I assume you won't have to do foreign agent warnings anymore. Yeah, and... <laughs> yeah, that's true. I was I was shocked when we were sitting in this small studio of our friends, uh, Formula mm -hmm. TV. It's a local TV station in Georgia. They mm -hmm. have given us everything free, free of charge. Yeah. And yeah. Um, we were sitting in the studio. It was the first uh, first stream on our YouTube channel, and we were quoting someone. I think it was Medusa, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I automatically I was going to say which is recognized as a foreign agent, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah. And then I said, oh my God, I don't have to say this. I don't, right. I don't have to say this, my God. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this, is, um, this is a good thing to understand. Yeah. And also, there are people who are saying terrible things about uh, Russian president and Russian federation and Russian soldiers. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't have this feeling of freezing that this, I mean, when it happened before on TV Rain, when some terrible things were said. Yeah, you had you had to worry you're going to be held liable for that. I had to worry because this could be used against us. And it was ultimately. And it was it was used. Yeah. So now, I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of this kind of uh, wording, and I mm -hmm. hate hate speech. I sure. <laughs> whoever whoever says it, I mean, I right. don't care. It's not yeah. the way that I like to communicate with the guests. Yeah. At least I know that no one would, you know, try to uh, put me in jail because because of someone yeah. says um, that Vladimir Putin is a killer. Yeah. For example.
did you think that they, that Russia would launch this full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Because it it took me by surprise, even though military analysts were saying for months, like, look at the satellite pictures, like they're going to do it. But I was with a lot of people who said this doesn't make any sense. The idea of like bombing Kiev is not is just a, too absurd to even contemplate. Yeah. Has the I hesitate to say has the war changed your opinion because then I get into this problem of the war actually started eight years ago and Ukrainians will constantly remind people of that. So I don't want to offend anybody who knows the war started eight years ago. So I'll just say the full scale invasion. Like has it has it changed the way you understand the regime or the administration or like the nature of of whatever's going on in Russia politically? Well, or did it confirm what you already thought? Yeah, yeah, they did. Actually, <laughs> I am a person who was in Georgia in 2008 okay. witnessing invasion, full-scale yeah. invasion of Georgia, of my country, by Vladimir Putin, uh, who was prime minister at that period of time. But of, co- of course, it was right. his decision and, of course, he, sure. his responsibility, whatever Dmitry yeah. Medvedev says about that. Well, now you, now Medvedev is like, sounds he sounds as crazy as Zhidanovsky. Uh, I but. mean, oh my God, it's um, I'm just... Uh, I can't even talk about this first. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. So, I rem- mm-hmm. yeah, I remember that. And um, after this whole gathering of Russian soldiers started at the border of Ukraine, right. it was a period of time when everyone was saying that Vladimir Putin is bluffing. Right? Yeah. Remember? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all the political analysts and uh, observers in Russia right. were sure that there would be no war, that Vladimir Putin is just trying to buy some, you know, negotiations with Joseph Biden, that Vladimir Putin is trying to buy some kind of maybe gestures from the Western world, maybe lifting of sanctions uh, and uh, so on and so forth, and guarantees uh, of not invading internal Russian affairs. But I was saying every day on air that he was preparing for war. I was sure that something was going on and something would happen. And it was me and Misha Fishman, two journalists on TV Rain, that were absolutely sure about the war was coming. And even, you know, there was a moment when uh, Macron visited Moscow and then it was Schultz visiting Moscow and there were statements made that there was something prepared, an agreement or some kind kind of deal between between the NATO and, and Russian Federation. And still I was insisting that Vladimir Putin would, would do something because he could not, in any case, without this war, he could not save his face. Yeah. Because I'm, I mean, I follow him for so long that I, I understand a little bit about his his positioning himself. I mean, what he thinks is right and what he thinks Western world should see in Russia and in him personally. So that's why I was insisting. And but still, Kevin, I, I need to I need to admit that I was thinking more about the full-scale invasion inside of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. I was expecting a war, but not in Kiev. I mean, when, when I was seeing this uh, um, reports of uh, British or American intelligence saying that Vladimir Putin would try to change the government in Kiev and mm-hmm. would bomb the capital of Ukraine, I was thinking that this is something like this is a big problem of uh, of the Western journalism that they're right. publishing it. I, I, yeah, I yeah. did have some questions. 
Didn't they learn anything from a rock like that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. something. It was it, it. It looked like too much for me. Yeah. Right? right. But then, but then, you know, when you see this, stuff, you need to say, "Dear Bloomberg, and dear whatever Spiegel, dear mm-hmm. New York Times, I am so sorry mm-hmm. that." Right. And it was skeptical about some of yeah. the publications. Right, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, they don't get a free pass for everything, but, but yeah, on this one. On this one, absolutely. You've been listening to the Naked Pravda, an English language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, you heard from independent journalists Ferida Rustamova and Yekaterina Katsurkadze about their work keeping Russian journalism alive at a time when the country itself has decimated the domestic free press. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa. It's our only English language show. And I hope you recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. It helps put this program in front of more people. Also, if you value Medusa's reporting, whether in English or Russian, please consider making a donation at medusa.io to help sustain our work. Recurring pledges help the most, but we'll take whatever you can spare. Thanks for listening and come back soon.